What do I know about man's destiny? I could tell you more about radishes. There's man all over for you, blaming on his boots the fault of his feet. Ever tried, ever failed. No matter, try again, fail again, fail better. Well, only one person could have composed that music. It's a distinctive, inimitable voice, and it's by one of the great masters of the English language and of the French language. Encountering this voice for the first time, or even for the 21st time, is an experience like hearing Mozart that one is not likely to forget. I suspect that everyone here has Beckett moments. Uh, one of my epiphanies came some 25 years ago when I was teaching at Penn, the one with two N's, and I went to Andre Gregory's production of Endgame, uh, starring David Hurst and Ron Liebman. Well, it was irresistible. I went back five magic nights in a row. And even though I'd been teaching the fiction, it was the first time I realized just how laugh out loud this gloomy Gus, when in the hands of a really brilliant actor, uh, could be. Uh, Nell, from her personal garbage can, says, uh, nothing is funnier than unhappiness. Yes, yes, I grant that. It's the most comical thing in the world. One reason Beckett fascinates us is the uh, avoidance of uh, finite meeting. It's nearly 50 years now since Godot failed to show, and scholars are still debating why. Uh, Beckett once said the most important word in his work is perhaps. Well, there's no perhaps about the fact that the wonderful people who have put this evening's program together, uh, Michael Roberts, Allison Summers, Andrea J. Aviren, uh, Nina Keneally, Susan Lyons, Ruth Rinken, uh, Jill DeBuff, uh, did I say Andrea J. Avirian? They've assembled a, a marvelous galaxy of Beckett lovers, and you can find short bios in the program. Uh, we'll hear from playwrights, Edward Albee and Israel Horowitz, from novelists, Paul Oster and Peter Carey, from publishers, uh, Richard and Jeanette Seaver, um, critics and scholars, Tom Bishop, Mal Gasso, and Christopher Ricks have, have written importantly about Beckett. And some brilliant actors, Mariah Aitken, Catherine Borowitz, Bill Irwin, Rosaline Linehan, Marion Seldes, and John Turturro have embodied characters in ways that those of us who have seen them will always remember. So on behalf of Penn American Center and of my colleagues, I want to express our heartfelt great uh, gratitude to these gifted friends. By the way, I should tell you who I am. I'm Joel Canaro, Penn's president. Thank you. But I want to emphasize that that's just an honorary position. The really heavy lifting down at Penn is done by Michael Roberts and his dedicated staff. This is an uneasy time for not-for-profit associations because a lot of expected support has uh, evaporated, and so we're particularly grateful, no perhaps about it, to the Kaplan Foundation, with special thanks to our dear friend Lex Kaplan, to the New York State Council on the Arts, to FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds, and to the Lila Wallace Theater Fund of the New York Community Trust. 
We thank all of them, and we thank all of you for being here and for interest that you show in Penn and our programs having to do with readers and writing and free expression. Well, now it's time to hear from our cast, and perhaps Godot himself will finally make an appearance tonight. So, fellow Beckett buffs, let Penn American Center, let the Penn American Center tribute to a great writer begin. Thank you very much. Good evening, I'm Mel Gusso. In the late 1940s, over a period of a little more than a year, Samuel Beckett wrote Malloy and Malone Dies, the first two parts of his trilogy of novels, and Waiting for Godot. It was for him and for us a miraculous year. He had turned to theater, he later told me, as relief from the blackness of prose. The play was written quickly in four months, and when it was finished, Suzanne, not yet his wife, took it and his earlier play, Eleutheria, around to producers, all of whom rejected them. It was, Beckett said, like giving it to the concierge. <laughs> Finally, Roger Bland decided to stage Godot, and in Paris, on January 5th, 1953, it was performed for the first time. Beckett did not attend the opening, beginning a lifelong habit of not watching his plays in the presence of an audience. The first review in Paris welcomed Beckett as one of today's best playwrights, a fact that at the time was not universally acknowledged. Now, almost 50 years later, Godot is accepted as the cornerstone of contemporary theater. And Beckett himself remains a towering figure in the world of theater and literature, which is what Penn celebrates this evening. I first met Beckett in 1978 and came to know him during the subsequent decade. In our conversations, he would never talk about the meaning of his work and one would never ask. But he did speak about how he wrote and about productions of his plays. And as a sign of his own diverse interest, we would talk about tennis, painting, politics, and other playwrights. On occasion, he would look back on his life and on his work with the French resistance during World War II. Always there was his passionate commitment on questions of censorship and artistic freedom. In 1986, in anticipation of his 80th birthday, I sent him a letter asking him if he might have something to say for a piece I was going to write about that milestone. In response, he wrote, I have nothing to say about the sad unevent and its sad effects for publication or otherwise. <laughs> Forgive. To have said anything else would not have been Beckettian. Our last meeting was in 1989 when he was in a nursing home in Paris, living in a small unadorned room, almost as bare as a cell or a setting for a Beckett play. He was living out the last months of his life rereading his schoolboy copy of the Divine Comedy in Italian. We each had a glass of Irish whiskey, and as we talked, he suddenly rose from his chair and began walking around the room like the character in Footfalls, pacing out his days with no end yet in sight. This was the final image I had of Beckett, but I am filled with thoughts about his dedication to his work, his persistence, and his insistence that despite all obstacles, an artist should try again, fail better. I'm also filled with memories of his openness and his willingness to meet people, even a critic, on their own terms and to enjoy their company. 
and of his humor, his love of clowns, and his gift for creating moments of uproarious pessimism. After Beckett died, his nephew Edward arranged for me to visit his uncle's apartment in Paris. His home, in common with so much else in his life, was kept private. Beckett's study was as he had left it, lined with his favorite books, some of them inscribed to him, and his own complete works in English, French, German, and Japanese. Perched outside on the sill of a single window was a metal figure of a man, a sculpture titled Invalide, and in all seasons it remained exposed to the weather of the world. Although one might be tempted to draw a parallel between the sculpture and its stoical owner, I could feel Beckett admonishing no symbols where none intended. The view from the window looking toward the Sante prison was bleak. One could imagine him sitting here composing his dead of night soliloquies and in his last year, what is the word? His final expression of the folly of trying to use language to account for life. Tonight we will hear from writers and actors and others talking about Beckett and reading from his work, both the prose and the plays. Necessarily, this could only be a sampling of his work. Fortunately, all 19 of his stage plays were filmed under the auspices of Michael Colgan at Dublin's Gate Theatre. One of those 19, Happy Days, stars Rosaline Linehan, repeating her stage performance in that play, which was directed originally in Dublin by Carol Rice, who died recently. Rosaline is here with us this evening with a scene from Happy Days. I want to acknowledge several people important to Beckett who were invited to participate in our celebration but were unable to come. John Calder, Joseph Chaikin, James Nolson, Barney Rossett, and Martin Siegel. I especially want to thank Allison Summers, whose vision and directorial talent made this entire evening possible. Many of us knew Beckett personally, and others knew him only through his work, which is, of course, the deepest way of approaching a writer who had the most profound impact on the art of the last century and whose creativity continues to resonate in the 21st century. We, we begin with Richard and Jeanette Siever. Richard Siever was Beckett's friend, editor, and translator, and one of the first to write about his work. Good evening, I'm Dick Siever. I think, I confess I have a little dilemma here because I belong to the Jack Benny school of, of not counting your age after 39. And yet, I must confess tonight that last week was the 50th anniversary of my meeting Beckett. Um, if you'll pardon that uh, anomaly, we will get on very quickly with my little story. I believe in serendipity and geography. And in my case, both factors played a part in bringing Beckett into my life. In the early 1950s, I was living in Paris, ostensibly uh, at the Sorbonne, doing a thesis on Joyce in France but I spent about 90% of my time involved in a literary magazine being published there in, that, in those years called Merlin. Uh, my humble abode, because it really was humble, it was an old banana drying warehouse, was at 8 Rue du Sabot, which is about 100 yards behind Saint-Germain-des-Prés. And around the corner from Rue du Sabot is another street called Bernard Palissy, which housed a young French publishing house called Edition de Minuit which was famous before my time 
as the underground resistance publisher in France under the German occupation. I used to take my daily trek from my Rue du Sabot abode to Saint-Germain-des-Prés at least once or twice a day, and inevitably I would have to pass, in the Rue Bernard Palissy, the Édition de Minuit. And one day in late 51, uh, I noticed in the little display window they had, there were two Beckett books, one called Malloy and one called Malone. And I said to myself, Beckett in French? What's going on here? I knew Beckett as an acolyte and a friend of James Joyce and one who worked with Joyce on both the Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, someone who had contributed to the Joyce ode of our examination around his factification of whatever it is, that title that I could never remember. But um, what was he doing in the French publisher's window? I assume they were translations, but piqued by my curiosity, I went in and found that uh, I bought Malloy. And I took it home and read it that night and was overwhelmed, literally overwhelmed. It was something that I had, uh, it was a shock of discovery. Uh, the simplicity, the beauty of the language, the humor, the self-deprecation, terror of the words just took me as something that I'd never quite encountered before. The next morning, I rushed over to Minui and parted with my dinner money that night and bought Malone. It was as stunning as Malloy. Where in the world had this man been hiding, I said to myself. What else had he written? At Minui, I went back again for the third time and told that he was uh, had just finished or was finishing a book called L'Innommable, The Unnameable, which they would be publishing early next year. Was there nothing else from this man, I said? There's a book called Murphy, his first novel, they said, which is available from another publisher, Bordas, that Beckett translated himself. So I hopped on my bicycle, which was my only mode of transportation, rushed over to Bordas and bought Malone, and bought Murphy, excuse me. That, I learned, had been published in 1938. And I read that with equal ardor. It was not quite Malloy or Malone, which I felt were masterpieces, but it was certainly all the rich seeds of future Beckett were there. I talked to Alex Trochi, who was the editor of Merle the next day, and I waxed enthusiastic about Beckett to the point where he said, for God's sake, man, stop talking about him and write a piece about him, and we'll publish it in the next issue, which I did in the second issue of Merlin in the spring of 1952 with great trepidation because I knew that I was over my head and could not offer much in the way of elucidation, uh, I wrote a, 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 an article called Samuel Beckett, An Introduction. And it was, whatever its faults, and they are many, the first piece in English to appear. Beckett was then already 46 years old and totally unknown for reasons that in, in retrospect escape all of us, I'm sure. When the issue appeared, I took a copy over to uh, the publisher of Edition de Minuit and asked if he would send it to Mr. Beckett. He also let drop that Beckett apparently had a novel that had not yet been published, his last written in English, called What? So in the covering note, I said, well, would you please, uh, if that is true and we could use an extract in the magazine, could we see what? We heard nothing for several weeks, and I began to despair when one dark night in November, was pouring outside. Beckett arrived, uh, we did not know it was Beckett, a knock came at the door of the Rue de Sabot, and I opened the door, and in the pouring rain, drenched to the skin, was this man in a slicker, tall, gaunt, and he handed me a packet, also drenched, and said, here, you asked for this. Here's what. 
And I said, here's what? <laughs> he said, what, he said. As I said, it's what? At which point he turned to leave, and I said, won't you come in and dry off at least? The whole Merlin gang was there. We were six in all. He glanced inside at the crowd and begged off. I later learned that Beckett did not like crowds, however small. Thanks, he said, but I can't. Let me know what you think. With that, he disappeared into the night, and that, as I mentioned, was the first time I met Mr. Beckett. So brief and yet so important. That issue of the magazine, the third issue of the magazine, was closed, but after reading Watt that night, which we did around the clock until three in the morning, passing the manuscript from one to the other as our voices gave out, we decided that that had to be in the issue. So we added that, the section from Watt, uh, or in, into the third issue of Merlin. We asked Beckett, which could we choose what section? He said, of course not, I'll choose it for you. And he did. And it is a six-page thing where you go from one end of the room to the other in about six pages, every possible permutation, presaging the sucking stone, the famous sucking stone incident in, 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 the, uh, in, the, in Malloy. But um, uh, un, undaunted, we published it anyway. And uh, in every issue thereafter, the seven or eight issues of that magazine that existed before it ceased, uh, we had something by Beckett. It cost us money, by the way. That first issue after the Watt publication, we got six subscriptions, which was about 10% of our subscription list, saying, this is nonsense. If you're gonna publish nonsense, we don't want a subscription, we want our money back. But um, uh, at that same fertile period, when Beckett was really producing a great deal of work, probably a, a, a result of his frustrations during the war where he couldn't write very much, he'd written three extraordinary short stories. The End, The Expelled, and The Sedative, or The Calmative, as he ended up calling it. I asked him if he'd translate one of those for the, for the issue of the magazine. He shook his head. He said, I can't, Dick, but why don't you? Not thinking what I was getting into, I said I would. It was only 15 manuscript pages. I was sure I could knock that off in a week or so. A month later, I was still struggling. Finally, I sent it off to Beckett, thinking I could do more work. He sent me a note a week or so later saying, like your translation, could we get together? There are a few things I need to go over with you. We met at the dome at Montparnasse, and in always at late afternoon, about two or three times a week, and there, with my wonderful translation in hand, Beckett and I would go over it line by line. Uh, he would start by saying, now there's a nice turn of phrase, Dick. And then he would add a word that would make the whole thing sing. Or he would look at the French and say, there's no way to translate that, Dick. It makes no sense whatsoever in the French. It took five or six sessions before we got it right. Of course, once it was over, I realized that in my callow youth, I had taken on an impossible task, rendering from one language into another, both of which he was master, but especially in English, the consummate master of the English language. Since those days, I've translated probably 40 or 50 books from the French, and whatever merit they may have in translation emanates from those sessions that I learned from Samuel Beckett. From those days on, we became fast friends and we saw each other very often, usually at the Closerie de Rila, his favorite bar in Montparnasse, and later back in the States when I went to work for Grove Press and Barney Rossett, who had become a, uh, Beckett's American publisher, I had the privilege and pleasure of working with him in a number of his later works. No author I've ever worked with was more considerate, more kind, and yet at the same time, absolutely sure of how his work should look and feel. Jérôme Landon, the publisher for 50 years of Beckett's work at the Édition de Minuit, who was also his closest friend and his literary executor, 
once said to me and my wife at a lunch shortly after Beckett's death, if I had done nothing else with my life but discover Beckett, publish him, and have him as a friend, my life would have been well worthwhile. That is very much how I feel as well. Well, to encapsulate several decades of intense friendship with this remarkable man in a few minutes is a daunting challenge. I'm not sure I have succeeded, but I will try to give a series of unconnected snapshots. By the time I arrived on the scene, Sam and Dick were already good friends and working together. I had read Dick's essay on Beckett. Dick and I had been going out for a few weeks when he invited me to see Waiting for Godot, which was playing in a small theater on the left bank, the Théâtre Babylone. I accepted with a certain trepidation, since I somehow didn't feel prepared for what I was about to see, and the French critics had called it very difficult. There were no more than 20 or 30 people in the audience, I remember. To my surprise, I loved Godot. How could you not? Dick was beaming. I guess this had been a test and I had passed. <laughs> we were married shortly thereafter. <laughs> and for that, I have at least in part Beckett to thank. He would often chuckle when we told him. We saw a great deal of Sam that year in Paris until we came to America, sharing dinners, lunches, walks in the park of Luxembourg, listening to music, looking at art. And even in our early years, both Dick and I were fully aware of the privilege to be with this extraordinary man, his presence, his voice, his looks, his intense blue eyes, his sincerity, in, oh, he was extraordinary, we knew that the time. There were even times when we felt as if we'd come out after hearing uh, Bach cantata. It was something very spiritual being with the man. Well, less than 10 years later, En attendant Godot was revived at the Théâtre de l'Odéon, this time with Giacometti's set. It meant real consecration for Sam. The Odéon, along with the Comédie Française, being a national theater. Beckett invited us to come to Paris for opening night. In contrast with the poorly attended Babylon Théâtre, it was packed house at the Odéon, and Godot was a triumph. Paris's uptight, snobbish theater audience was finally welcoming the playwright with a standing ovation. The playwright, however, in the meantime, was sulking, waiting for us at the coupole, his head buried in his hands. We arrived at the coupole with Giacometti. Wonderful new production, Sam, we said, hugging him. How can you say that? How can you possibly like this play? All I can see is what's wrong with it. It's a bad play. <laughs> Nothing we offered brought him out of his funk, not even iry whiskey, or when I dragged him on the dance floor of the nightclub we had landed after dinner. I must say that for me, dancing that evening with Giacometti and Beckett, <laughs> each with his own brand of stiff and awkward steps, 
remained engraved in my mind as an amusing, moving, and historic event. <laughs> well, when Sam and Dick worked together translating, I would pick them up at the end of the day, and the three of us would walk up to one of Beckett's favorite restaurants, Les Îles Marquises, somewhere in Montparnasse. He felt comfortable there in its anonymity and always headed straight to his table at the far end of the dining room, ordering always a filet sol grillé while we were gorging ourselves in all sorts of wonderful food. Dick had a way of making Sam laugh a great deal, and Sam always insisted we finish off the soirée at the Falstaff, his favorite bar of the Boulevard Montparnasse. Well, these animated evenings often went on till the wee hours of the morning and were to be repeated over and over over the next decades. We parted always energized and exhausted, we hopping into a taxi while Sam disappeared into the night, always w walking home, not always in a straight line. Sam, who rarely, if ever, had a negative word to say about anyone, he was a very kind man, did complain to us in later years about the intrusion on his time by the increasing number of academics, realizing, of course, that in most instances he, was, he had brought it on to himself. He was victim of his own courtesy, finding it difficult to say no to anyone. One day, Beckett insisted we come to visit him in his country house in Ussi, a nondescript, rather gloomy little village an hour or so outside of Paris, where he would go usually driving his rickety little tin can of a deux chevaux Citroën and write away from the city bustle, sometimes weeks at a time. Beckett's house stood behind a walled enclosure at the back of a narrow garden with one or perhaps two scrawny trees, a virtual replica of Godot's set. He seemed perfectly content, his house with a bed, a table, some chairs, a teapot, a few books, and his upright piano were all he needed. Music had always been an essential part of Beckett's life and music became an additional bond between the two of us. The fact that in those days I was a serious classical musician fascinated and attracted him. We spent many hours listening to music and discussing it. At my urging that day, he sat down and played part of a Mozart piano sonata. He played the piano every day until some terrible arthritis in his hands made it impossible. He even went to Switzerland where a famous hand surgeon operated on his hands, alas, to no avail. And to Sam's chagrin, he was never able to, to play the piano again. After making us some tea, Sam asked whether we would mind if he read to us what he had been working on. And in his unique voice, this wonderful Irish accent, although he did read it in French, he proceeded to read Westward Ho, a short play he had been commissioned by the French radio. With his usual uncertainty, he reluctantly acknowledged our praise. For me, one of the great pities, and for Dick too, is that despite numerous attempts on our part, and I'm sure on others, Beckett never recorded his own work. In 1987, 
at my publishing house called Sierra Books, I published a literary homage to Nelson Mandela, who is still in prison, with contributions by 23 writers from around the world. The profits were to be donated to a committee working to free Mandela. I asked Sam if he would contribute. I would love to, he told me, but I'm not writing anything these days. The well is completely dry. Very soon after, however, he phoned and we met in a cafe. Almost apologetic, he told me he had written a poem he didn't think very much of that morning. Would I hear it? And he recited this short poem. Brief overview, go and there one fine day, where never till then, till as much as to say, no matter where, no matter when. Would that do, he asked. And the poem was published in the anthology. In the 80s, after Sam's wife Suzanne had died and he himself had fallen ill, Jérôme Landon found him a, a good place where he could be taken care of. We went to see him there, of course, many times. And the last time, Sam was waiting for us, statuesque and still very handsome, though thin, wearing a turtleneck with a volume of Yeats's poetry in his hands. Visibly happy to see us, he drank a glass of the Irish whiskey we had brought him, and we shared more than a few good laughs again. It seemed like old times, and for a brief moment, Sam seemed to have regained his spark, his youthful energy. But suddenly, in that Spartan setting, it all looked painfully like the end of Beckett Place. He died very shortly thereafter. <laughs> Catherine Barowitz now takes us back to The Expelled, one of Beckett's earliest novellas written just after the end of the Second War. In it, Catherine speaks as a man. not many steps. I had counted them a thousand times, both going up and coming down, but the figure has gone from my mind. I've never known whether you should say one with your foot on the sidewalk, two with the following foot on the first step, and so on, or whether the sidewalk shouldn't count. At the top of the steps, I fell foul of the same dilemma. In the other direction, I mean from top to bottom, it was the same. The word was not too strong. I did not know where to begin nor where to end. That's the truth of the matter. I arrived, therefore, at three totally different figures without ever knowing which of them was right. And when I say that the figure has gone from my mind, I mean that none of the three figures is with me anymore in my mind. It is true that if I were to find in my mind where it is certainly to be found, one of these figures, I would find it and it alone without being able to deduce from it the other two. And even were I to recover two, I would not know the third. No, I would have to find all three in my mind in order to know all three. Memories are killing. 
So you must not think of certain things of those that are dear to you. Or rather, you must think of them. For if you don't, there's the danger of finding them in your mind little by little. That is to say, you must think of them for a while, a good while, every day, several times a day, until they sink forever in the mud. That's an order. <laughs> After all, it is not the number of steps that matters. The important thing to remember is that there were not many, and that I have remembered. Even for the child, there were not many compared to other steps he knew, from seeing them every day, from going up and coming down, and from playing on them at knuckle bones and other games, the very names of which he has forgotten. What must it have been like, then, for the man I had overgrown into? The fall was therefore not serious. Even as I fell, I heard the door slam, which brought me a little comfort in the midst of my fall. For that meant they were not pursuing me down into the street with a stick to beat me in full view of the passers-by. For if that had been their intention, they would not have shut the door but left it open so that the persons assembled in the vestibule might enjoy my chastisement and be edified. So, for once, they had confined themselves to throwing me out and no more about it. I had time before coming to rest in the gutter to conclude this piece of reasoning. Under these circumstances, nothing compelled me to get up immediately. I rested my elbow on the sidewalk. Funny the things you remember. Settled my ear in the cup of my hand and began to reflect on my situation, notwithstanding its familiarity. But the sound fainter but unmistakable, of the door slammed again, roused me from my reverie, in which already a whole landscape was taking form, charming with hawthorn and wild roses, most dreamlike, and made me look up in alarm, my hands flat on the sidewalk and my legs braced for flight. But it was merely my hat sailing toward me through the air, rotating as it came. I caught it and put it on. They were most correct, according to their God. They could have kept this hat, but it was not theirs. It was mine, so they gave it back to me. But the spell was broken. How describe this hat? And why? When my head had attained I shall not say its definitive, but its maximum dimensions, my father said to me, come son, we're going to buy your hat. As though it had pre-existed from time immemorial in a pre-established place. He went straight to the hat. I personally had no say in the matter, nor had the hatter. I've often wondered if my father's purpose was not to humiliate me, if he was not jealous of me who was young and handsome fresh at least, while he was already old and all bloated and purple. It was forbidden me from that day forth to go out bareheaded, my pretty brown hair blowing in the wind. Sometimes, in a secluded street, I took it off and held it in my hand, but trembling. I was required to brush it morning and evening. Boys my age with whom, in spite of everything, I was obliged to mix occasionally, mocked me. 
But I said to myself, it is not really the hat. They simply make merry at the hat because it is a little more glaring than the rest, for they have no finesse. I've always been amazed at my contemporaries' lack of finesse. I, whose soul writhed from morning to night in the mere quest of itself. But perhaps they were simply being kind, like those who make game of the hunchback's big nose. When my father died, I could have got rid of this hat. There was nothing more to prevent me. But not I. But how describe it? Some other time. Some other time. I got up and set off. I forget how old I can have been. In what had just happened to me, there was nothing in the least memorable. It was neither the cradle nor the grave of anything whatever. Or rather, it resembled so many other cradles, so many other graves, that I'm lost. But I don't believe I exaggerate when I say that I was in the prime of life, what I believe is called the full possession of one's faculties. Ah, yes, then I possessed, all right. I crossed the street and turned back towards the house that had just ejected me, I who never turned back when leaving. How beautiful it was. There were geraniums in the windows. I've brooded over geraniums for years. Geraniums are artful customers, but in the end, I was able to do what I liked with them. I've always greatly admired the door of this house up on top of its little flight of steps. How describe it? It was a massive green door encased in summer in a kind of green and white striped housing with a hole for the thunderous wrought iron knocker and a slit for letters, this latter closed to dust flies and tits by a brass flap fitted with springs. So much for that description. <laughs> the door was set between two pillars of the same color, the bell being on that to the right. The curtains were unexceptionable taste. Even the smoke rising from one of the chimney pots seemed to spread and vanish in the air more sorrowful than the neighbors and bluer. I looked up at the third and last floor and saw my window outrageously open. A thorough cleaning was in full swing. In a few hours, they would close the window, draw the curtains, and spray the whole place with disinfectant. I knew them. I would have gladly died in that house. In a sort of vision, I saw the door open and my feet come out. I wasn't afraid to look, for I knew they were not spying on me from behind the curtains, as they could have done if they had wished. But I knew them. They had all gone back into their dens and resumed their occupations. And yet I had done them no harm. In 1988, Bill Irwin played Lucky in Mike Nichols' production of Waiting for Godot at Lincoln Center. In subsequent years, performing Text for Nothing, he further certified his position as one of Beckett's leading interpreters. Tonight, he returns to his role as Lucky with a small portion of Lucky's speech. One thing to remember is that Lucky needs his hat in order to speak. 
Bill has actually written a line of dialogue for me, and if I can only remember my cue, I may appear back here on stage. Bill Irwin. Thank you. As Mel says, this will be just a short portion of the famous speech because of its great length. And as he says, it has to be spoken with the hat. Given the existence as uttered forth in the public works of Puncher and Watman of a personal God. Qua, qua, ah, ah. With the white beard, qua, qua, qua. Ah. Outside time without extension, who from the heights of divine Epathia, divine Ethambia, divine Aphasia, loves us dearly, <laughs> with some exceptions for reasons unknown, but time will tell and suffers like the divine Miranda with those who for reasons unknown, but time will tell, are plunged in torment, plunged in fire, whose fire flames, if that continues, and who can doubt it will fire the firmament, that is to say, blast hell to heaven so blue, still and calm, so calm with a calm, which even though intermittent is better than nothing, but not so fast, and considering what is more, that as a result of the labors left unfinished, crowned by the Academy of Anthropopometry, <laughs> of Essie in Pussy, of Testu and Cunard, it is established beyond all doubt, all other doubt, that that which clings to the labors of men, that as a result of the labors unfinished of Testu and Cunard, it is established as hereinafter, but not so fast, that for reasons unknown, that as a result of the public works of Hunter and Watman, it is established beyond all doubt that in view of the labors of Fartoff and Melcher left unfinished, <laughs> for reasons unknown, Testu and Cunard left unfinished, it is established what many deny. That man in Pussy of Testu and Cunard, that man in Essie, that man in short, that man in brief, in, in spite of the strides of alimentation and defecation, wastes and pines. Wastes and pines. And concurrently, simultaneously, what is more, for reasons unknown, in spite of the strides of physical culture, the practice of sports, 
such as tennis, football, running, cycling, swimming, flying, floating, riding, gliding, conating, kamogi, skating, tennis of all sorts, dying, flying, sports of all sorts, autumn, summer, winter, winter, tennis <laughs> of all kinds, hockey of all sorts, penicillin and succedania. <laughs> In a word, I resume flying, gliding, golf, over nine and 18 holes, tennis of all sorts. In a word, for reasons unknown, in Fuckem, Beckham, Fulham, Clapham. Namely, concurrently, simultaneously, what is more, for reasons unknown, but time will tell, fades away. I resume Fulham, Clapham, in a word, the dead loss per head since the death of Bishop Barclay being to the tune of one inch, four ounce per head, approximately by and large, more or less, nearest decimal, good measure, round figures, stark naked in the stocking feet in Connemara, I resume. No matter what matter, the facts are there, and considering what is more, that much more grave in the light, the light, the light of the labor's loss of Steinweg and Peterman, that in the light, the light, the light of the labor's loss of Steinweg and Peterman, that in the plains, in the mountains, by the rivers, by the seas, running water, running fire, the air is the same, and then the earth, namely the air, and then the earth, Steinweg and Peterman. <laughs> Mel has blown his line. He was to have called this lovely lady to take off. He's about to. Steinweg and Peterman in the light, the light, the light of the labors lost of Steinweg and Peterman. His hat, his hat. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Paul Oster and uh, I just wanted to share one little story with you before reading a couple of passages from Watts. Uh, I had the good fortune to, to meet Beckett a few times in Paris, uh, several one-on-one -on -one conversations with him that lasted hours, and to have corresponded over the years, over a number of years. But there's just one story I wanted to tell because time is getting short. And uh, this story made such a deep impression on me and taught me so much about what it means to be a writer that I just can't resist telling it now. Uh, it took place during our first meeting in the early 70s and I was just about 25 years old. And at some point during the conversation, which took place at the Closerie de Lila, which has been mentioned about four times already tonight, uh, Beckett told me that he had just finished translating Mercier and Camier, which was his first French novel, and had been written about 25 years earlier. 
And I had read the book in French and liked it very much. And I said, a wonderful book. And I was just a kid after all. I couldn't suppress my enthusiasm. And Beckett shook his head and said, oh no, no, not very good. In fact, I've cut out about 25% of the original. The English version is going to be a lot shorter than the French. And I said, remember how young I was, I said, why would you do such a thing? It's a wonderful book. You shouldn't have taken a word out. And he shook his head and he said, no, no, not very good, not very good. Then we went on to talk about other things. And, and then out of the blue, 10 or 15 minutes later, apropos of nothing, he leaned forward across the table and he said to me very earnestly, you really liked it, huh? You, you, you really thought it was good. This was Samuel Beckett, remember. <clears throat> and not he, even he had any idea of what his work was worth. Good or bad, meaningful or not, no writer ever knows. Not even the best ones, and I suppose especially not the best ones. Anyway, I had picked out about seven passages from what? I boiled it down to two. Uh, I don't know if many of you are familiar with this book. It was written in English um, in the 40s during a very dark time, mostly during the war. I think the better part of the book was composed while Beckett was in the south of France having run away uh, from the Germans and uh, he had been in the resistance in Paris and was working as an agricultural laborer and he said he wrote this book to keep himself from going insane. And uh, so the first passage begins on page 37. Watt is arriving at the house of Mr. Knott to become a servant in this house. And he's replacing somebody who's about to leave. Uh, the man has been in the kitchen and then he suddenly left. And finding himself now alone with nothing in particular to do, Watt put his forefinger in his nose first in one nostril and then in the other. But there were no crusts in Watt's nose tonight. But in a short time, the gentleman reappeared to Watt. He was dressed for the road and, he carried, a, and carried a stick, but no hat was on his head nor any bag in his hand. Before leaving, he made the following short statement. Now, I want to jump seven pages ahead. The man is still talking. It is not a short statement at all. <clears throat> and here, from 37 to page 44, he says, Personally, of course, I regret everything. Not a word, not a deed, not a thought, not a need, not a grief, not a joy, not a girl, not a boy, not a doubt, not a trust, not a scorn, not a lust, not a hope, not a fear, not a smile, not a tear, not a name, not a face, no time, no place, that I do not regret exceedingly, an ordure from beginning to end. And yet, when I sat for fellowship, but for the boil on my bottom, ah, the rest, an ordure. The, the Tuesday scowls, the Wednesday growls, the Thursday curses, the Friday howls, the Saturday snores, the Sunday yawns, the Monday mourns, the... Monday morns, the wax, the moans, the cracks, the groans, the welts, the squeaks, 
the belts, the shrieks, the pricks, the prayers, the kicks, the tears, the scalps, and the yelps. And the poor, old, lousy, old earth, my earth, and my fathers, and my mothers, and my fathers, fathers, and my mothers, mothers, and my fathers, mothers, and my mothers, fathers, and my fathers, mothers, fathers, and my mothers, fathers, mothers, and my fathers, mothers, mothers, and my mothers, fathers, fathers, and my fathers, fathers, mothers, and my mothers, mothers, fathers, and my fathers, 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 and my <laughs> mothers, 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 and other people's fathers and mothers, <laughs> and mothers, fathers, and fathers, mothers, fathers, and mothers, fathers, mothers, and fathers, mothers, mothers, and mothers, fathers, fathers, and fathers, fathers, mothers, and mothers, mothers, fathers, and fathers, 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 and mothers, 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 and excrements. The crocuses and the larch turning green every year, a week before the others, and the pastures red with uneat uneaten sheep's placentas, and the long summer days and the new mown hay, and the wood pigeon in the morning, and the cuckoo in the afternoon, and the corn crake in the evening, and the wasps in the jam, and the smell of the gorse, and the look of the gorse, and the apples falling, and the children walking in the dead leaves, and the larch turning brown a week before the others, and the chestnuts falling, and the howling winds, and the sea breaking over the pier, and the first fires, and the hooves on the road, and the consumptive postman whistling, the roses are blooming in Picardy, and the standard oil lamp, and of course the snow, and to be sure, the sleet, and bless your heart, the slush, and every fourth year, the February debacle, and the endless April showers, and the crocuses, and then the whole bloody business starting all over again. <laughs> a turd. And if I could begin it all over again, knowing what I know now, the result would be the same. And if I could begin again a third time, knowing what I would know then, the result would be the same. And if I could begin it all over again a hundred times, knowing each time a little more than the time before, the result would always be the same. And the hundredth life as the first and the hundred lives as one, a cat's flux. Okay, later on in the book, the whole gang is out in the yard. And this is very short. One day, they were all four in the garden. Mr. Knott, Watts, Arthur, and Mr. Graves. It was a beautiful summer's day. Mr. Knott was moving slowly about, disappearing now behind a bush, emerging now from behind another. Watt was sitting on a mound. Arthur was standing on the lawn talking to Mr. Graves. Mr. Graves was leaning on a fork, but the great mass of the empty house was hard by, abound, and they were all in safety. Arthur said, do not despair, Mr. Graves. Someday the clouds will roll away and the sun, so long obnubilated, and the sun, so long obnubilated, burst forth for you, Mr. Graves, at last. Not a kick in me, Mr. Arthur, said Mr. Graves. Oh, Mr. Graves, said Arthur, do not say that. When I says a kick, said Mr. Graves, I mean that he made a gesture with a fork. Have you tried Bando, Mr. Graves, said Arthur. 
a capsule before and after meals and a little warm milk, and again at night before turning in. I had tried everything and was thoroughly disgusted. When a friend spoke to me of Bando, her husband was never without it, you understand. Try it, she said, and come back in five or six years. I tried it, Mr. Graves, and it changed my whole outlook on life. From being a moody, listless, constipated man, covered with squeams, shunned by my fellows, my breath fetid, and my appetite depraved. For years I had eaten nothing but high-fat rashers. I became, after four years of bando, vivacious, restless, a popular nudist, <laughs> regular in my daily health, almost a father, and a lover of boiled potatoes. Bando, spelt as pronounced. Thank you. Our next play is Play, which is always performed by three people in urns. Tonight, urnless Mariah Aitken performs a scene from the play. She plays woman two in the story of a triangular relationship, Maria Aitken. One morning, as I was sitting stitching by the open window, she burst in and flew at me. Give him up, she screamed, he's mine. Her photographs were kind to her. Seeing her now for the first time full length in the flesh, I understood why he preferred me. <laughs> what are you talking about, I said, stitching away. Someone yours? Give up whom? I smell you off him, she screamed, he stinks of bitch. Fearing she was about to offer me violence, I rang for Erskine and had her shown out. Her parting words, as he could testify, if he is still living and has not forgotten, coming and going on the earth, letting people in, showing people out, were to the effect that she would settle my hash. I confess this did alarm me a little at the time. Why don't you get out, I said, when he started moaning about his home life. There's obviously nothing between you anymore. Or is there? Anything between us, he said. What do you take me for, a something machine? And of course, with him, no danger of the spiritual thing. Then why don't you get out, I said. I sometimes wondered if he was not living with her for the money. She came again. Just strolled in, all honey, licking her lips. Poor thing. I was doing my nails by the open window. He's told me all about it, she said. Who he, I said, filing away, and what it? I know what torture you must be going through, she said, and I dropped in to say I bear you no ill feeling. I rang for Erskine. <laughs> when he came again, we had it out. I felt like death. He went on about why he had to tell her, too risky and so on. That meant he'd gone back to her. Back to that! He went on and on. I could hear a mower, an old hand mower. I stopped him and said that whatever I might feel, I had no silly threats to offer, but not much stomach for her leavings either. 
He thought that over for a bit. The only solution was to go away together. He swore we should, as soon as he'd put his affairs in order. In the meantime, we were to carry on as before. By that, he meant as best we could. When he stopped coming, I was prepared, more or less. I made a bundle of his things and burnt them. It was November, and the bonfire was going. All night, I smelt them smoldering. To say I'm not disappointed, no, I am. I had anticipated something better, more restful, less confused, less confusing. At the same time, I prefer this to the other thing, definitely. There are endurable moments. Are you listening to me? Is anybody listening to me? Is anyone looking at me? Is anyone bothering about me at all? Uh, am I not perhaps a little unhinged already? I say, am I not perhaps a little unhinged already? J just a little? I doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> My name is Christopher Ricks. I, I lay inert on the bed, and it took three women to put on my trousers. They didn't seem to take much interest in my private parts, which, to tell the truth, were nothing to write home about. I didn't take much interest in them myself, but they might have passed some remark. Um, <laughs> What is so wonderful in this is the deranged punctilio with which this old man is being dismissed from the Mercy Hospital. Uh, the greatness in the writing is partly, of course, the suspicion. The women, they didn't seem to take much interest in my I'm not saying they didn't take any, um, and so on. I didn't take much interest in them myself. Um, the key thing, though, is the cliché. I'm just going to say a few words about how Beckett uses clichés on the principle that no writer can afford to disdain clichés. Clichés are everywhere in everyday language, and you can't afford to cut yourself off from them. The original did not have, they were nothing to write home about. In what circumstances do you write home about your private parts? Even, <laughs> even Sylvia Plath in her letters home was far too busy writing about other things to do that. And the original French simply has qui n'avait rien du particulier, about which there was nothing special. It's when he translates his French into English, or rather into Irish, that you get this wonderful write home about bit. And when you look at the original translation which Beckett did, which Richard Seaver referred to this evening in Merlin, you find that it went like this. They did not seem to take much interest in my private parts. I didn't take much interest in them myself anymore but I felt they might have said something. No, no, that's got this poignancy of any more, and I felt they might have said something. It leaves this deranged formality of the Irish language, but they might have passed some remark. Um, that's the dignity of it. Uh, the French was very beautiful. The French says, elle aurait pu dire un petit quelque chose. Now, is that what they were going to say when they looked at it? Un petit quelque chose? Um, um, <laughs> 
with the with the comedy, of course, that shows is feminine in French, but quelque chose is masculine. The sun shone, having no alternative, on the nothing new. You'll remember that this is how he begins his first novel. It's called a novel because it is new, uh, and this one you might as well close immediately, except that nobody had ever called it the nothing new before. She began to undress. When at their wit's end, they undressed, no doubt the wisest course. She took off everything with a slowness fit to inflame an elephant, except her stockings, calculated presumably to bring my concupiscence to the boil. It was then I noticed the squint. Fortunately, she was not the first naked woman to have crossed my path, so I could stay. I knew she would not explode. I asked to see the other room, which I had not yet seen. Uh, now, again, it's the dementia that controls it, but it's the first naked woman to have crossed my path. Uh, with that bit about with a slowness fit to inflame an elephant, it sounds as if he's on some strange sexual safari. And the, the French, which Beckett is translating so beautifully into Irish here, is simply, ce n'était heureusement pas la première fois que je voyais une femme nue could have gone perfectly into it. It wasn't the first time I had seen a naked woman. Now this cross my path crosses his mind as he's translating from his stepmother tongue into his uh, original English. You get these phrases, of course, a lot in obituaries. There was a Times obituary which said about somebody that he was a perfectly good man, but woe to those who crossed his path. You thought he was going to say, but woe to those who crossed him. Apparently you didn't have to cross this guy at all. All you had to do was cross <laughs> his path and you got woe. Uh, the, no doubt the man writing the obituary did not mean to say this, but as A.E. Houseman once said, the pen is mightier than the wrist. Um, uh, I give you from obituaries in the Beckett manner. This is a Times obituary again. His gentle charm, dry wit, unfailing good manners and approachability set him apart. Um, <laughs> um, uh, or again, he was a valued contributor to the Times Literary Supplement of which he was poetry editor and he had a long and fruitful connection with the obituary department of the Times. Uh, now how extraordinary to put into somebody's obituary this word fruitful at the very end as in some great pantheist vision. Personally, I have no bone to pick with graveyards. I take the air there willingly, perhaps more willingly than elsewhere, when take the air I must. The smell of corpses distinctly perceptible under those of grass and humus mingled, I do not find unpleasant. The original French has personnellement je n'ai rien contre les cimetières. Could have gone perfectly into English as personally have nothing against graveyards and the American edition of First Love has personally have nothing against graveyards. Personally I have no bone to pick with graveyards. Then moving into this wonderful play on the word must. When take the air I must and the verb decays into a noun before your very nose. The air I must, the smell of corpses. Camia gave a scream of pain, for the constable, holding fast his arm with one hand the size of two, with the other had dealt him a violent smack. His interest was awakening. It was not every night a diversion of this quality broke the monotony of his beat. The profession had its silver lining. He had always said so. He unsheathed his truncheon. Come on with you now, he said, and no nonsense. 
With the hand that held the truncheon, he drew a whistle from his pocket, for he was no less dexterous than powerful. But he had reckoned without Mercia, who can blame him, and to his undoing, for Mercia raised his right foot, who could have believed it, and launched it clumsily but with force among the testicles to call a spade a spade of the adversary impossible to miss them. Uh, now, there are four extraordinary... Uh, there's a certain kind of lecturer who goes like this when he quotes something, uh, and when you get parentheses or lunuli, there's a temptation to go like this. Now, on this occasion, it would be not right. Uh, who can blame him? Who could have foreseen it to call a spade a spade? Impossible to miss them. If those are not four scrotal tropes, I'd like to know what they are and so on. Um, to call a spade a spade, because if you get kicked hard enough there, you will be spade. Um, <laughs> Seen from outside, it was a house like any other. Seen from inside, too. <laughs> uh, the embrace that is rebuffed. Uh, push him aside. I'll do it some other time when you're less yourself. Um, now, the turn there is a turn in the Irish. The French has simply, quand tu seras mieux, when you're feeling better. Speak up, said Mercia. I'm not deaf. Now, hang on a minute. Speak up, I'm a bit deaf, or you don't have to shout, I'm not deaf. But speak up, said Mercia, I'm not deaf, implies that as soon as people think you're hard of hearing, they deliberately lower their voices, um, as, of course, they do. Um, extraordinary, the extraordinary riches of this seems to me the unremitting source of life in his composition, the puns that he makes on composition and decomposition, and the great, deep, dark, beautiful joke that he made in honor of James Joyce, uh, 1980-1982, Beckett, the single sentence, I welcome this occasion to bow once again before I go, deep down before his heroic work, heroic being. Good evening. My name's Peter Carey. I write novels. Thank you. Although, there was a time 30 years ago that I imagined I might be a poet. And I submitted some of these early works of genius to the Evergreen Review here in New York City. And it's really strange. I don't recall the name of the editor who rejected me. We normally do remember these things forever. Uh, but whoever did the deed also took pity on me, and perhaps it was because I'd written from Melbourne, Australia, where Evergreen Review was banned. So I received, along with my rejection, three copies of the illegal magazine. And what a gift that was, because that's how I was introduced to Samuel Beckett. It was a clandestine meeting in a Melbourne tram. Just me and an excerpt from How It Is. And that was it. And as uh, Edward Albee already said, it's perhaps not wise to be influenced by so singular a voice, but there was no escaping it for me. And I spent the next four years doing all those things young writers do and shouldn't do, which is imitating and parodying, and I suppose you could say learning from him. But these early influences are like old love affairs. They're over, but never over and they make us who we are, and they never go away. Tonight I'd like to read from, from 
from an abandoned work. It appeared in Evergreen Review in 1957. Up bright and early that day, I was young then, feeling awful and out, mother hanging out of the window in her nightdress, weeping and waving. Nice fresh morning, bright too early, as so often. Feeling really awful, very violent. The sky would soon darken and rain fall and go on falling all day till evening. Then blue sky and sun again a second, then night. Feeling all this, how violent and the kind of day, I stopped and turned. So back with bowed head on the lookout for a snail, slug or worm. Great love in my heart too for all things still and rooted, bushes, boulders and the like. Not to mention, too numerous to mention, even the flowers of the field. Not for the world when in my right senses would I ever touch one to pluck it. Whereas a bird now, or a butterfly, fluttering about and getting in my way, or moving things, getting in my path, a slug now, getting under my feet, no, no mercy. Not that I'd go out of my way to get at them, no, at a distance, often they seemed still. Then a moment later, they were upon me. Birds with my piercing sight I have seen flying so high, so far, that they seemed at rest. Then the next minute they were all about me. Crows have done this. Ducks are perhaps the worst, to be suddenly stamping and stumbling in the middle of ducks or hens, any class of poultry. Few things are worse. Nor will I go out of my way to avoid such things when avoidable, no. I simply will not go out of my way although I have never in my life been on my way anywhere, but simply on my way. And in this way, I have gone through great thickets, bleeding and deep into bogs, water too, even the sea in some moods, and been carried out in my course and driven back so as not to drown. And that is perhaps how I shall die at last if they don't catch me. I mean, drowned. Or in fire, yes. Perhaps that is how I shall do it at last, walking furiously along, headlong into fire and dying burnt to bits. Then I raised my eyes and saw my mother still at the window, waving, waving at me. Sorry, waving me back or on. I don't know, or just waving in sad, helpless love. And I heard faintly her cries. The window frame was green, pale, the house wall grey, and my mother white and so thin I could see past her, piercing sight I had then, into the dark of the room and on all that full, the not long risen sun, and all small because of the distance. Very pretty, really, the whole thing. I remember it, the old grey and then the thin green surround and the thin white against the dark. If only she could have been still and let me look at it all. No, for once I wanted to stand and look at something. I couldn't with her there waving and fluttering and swaying in and out of the window as though she were doing exercises. And for all I know, she may have been not bothering about me at all. No tenacity of purpose. That was another thing I didn't like. And in one week it would be exercises and the next prayers and Bible reading and the next gardening and the next playing the piano and singing. That was awful. And then just lying about and resting, always changing. Not that it mattered to me. I was always out. But let me get on now with the day I've hit on to begin with. Any other would have done as well. Yes, on with it now and on my way. And on to another. Enough of my mother for the moment. Well then, for a time, all well. No trouble. 
No birds at me, nothing across my path except a great, at a great distance, a white horse followed by a boy, or it might have been a small man or a woman. All well then for a time, just the violence and this white horse, when suddenly I flew into a most savage rage, really blinding. Now why this sudden rage, I really don't know. These sudden rages, like a great wind suddenly rising in me. No, I can't describe. It wasn't a violence getting worse in any case. Nothing to do with that. Some days I would be feeling quite violent all day and never have a rage. Other days, quite quiet for me and have four or five. There was a time I tried to get relief by beating my head against something, but I gave it up. The best thing I found was to start running. Perhaps I should mention here, I was a very slow walker. I didn't dally or loiter in any way, just walked very slowly, little short steps, and the feet very slow through the air. On the other hand, I must have been quite one of the fastest runners in the world the world has ever seen, over a short distance, five or 10 yards. In a second, I was there. <laughs> but I could not go on at that speed, not the breathlessness, it was mental, all is mental, figments. Now, the jog trot, on the other hand, I could no more do than I could fly. No, with me it was all slow, and then these flashes or gushes, vent the pent, that was one of the things I used to say over and over as I went along, vent the pent, vent the pent. Love too, often in my thoughts, when a boy, but not a great deal compared to other boys, it kept me awake. Never loved anyone, I think, I'd remember, except in my dreams, and there it was animals, dream animals, nothing like what you see walking about the country, I couldn't describe them. Lovely creatures, they were white mostly. In a way, perhaps, so in a way, perhaps it's a pity, a good woman might have been the making of me, I might be sprawling in the sun now, sucking my pipe and patting the bottoms of the third and fourth generations looking up to a respected, wondering what there might be for dinner instead of stravaging the same old roads in all weathers. I was never much of a one for new ground. No, I regret nothing. All I regret is having been born. Dying is such a long, tiresome business I always found. But let me get on now from where I left off. The white horse and then the rage. No connection, I suppose. But why go on with all this? I don't know. Someday I must end. Why not now? Thank you. That chair is for Marion Selgas, one of our finest actresses and a friend to all playwrights. She's going to do Rockabye. She said to herself, whom else? Time she stopped. Time she stopped. 
going to and fro. All eyes, all sides, high and low. For another, another like herself, another creature like herself, a little like, going to and fro. All eyes, all sides, high and low. For another, till in the end, close of day, to herself, who knows? Time she stopped. Time she stopped going to and fro, all eyes, all sides, high and low, for another, another living soul, one other living soul, going to and fro, all eyes, like herself, all sides, high and low, for another, another, like herself, a little like going to and fro, till in the end close of a long day, to herself, whom else, time she stopped, going to and fro, time she stopped, time she stopped, time she stopped. More. So in the end, close of a long day, went back in, in the end, went back in, saying to herself, who else? Time she stopped, time she stopped, going to and fro, time she went and sat at her window, quiet at her window, facing other windows, so in the end, close of a long day, in the end went and sat, went back in and sat at her window, let the blind up and sat, quiet at her window, only window, facing other windows, other only windows, all eyes, all sides, high and low for another at her window, Another like herself, a little like. Another living soul. One other living soul. Gone in like herself. Gone back in in the end. Close of a long day. Saying to herself, whom else? Time she stopped. Time she stopped. Going to and fro. Time she went and sat at her window. Quiet at her window, only window, facing other windows, other only windows, all eyes, all sides, high and low, for another, another like herself, a little like, another living soul, one other living soul. of a long day, sitting at her window, quiet at her window, only window, facing other windows, other only windows, 
all blinds down, never one up, hers alone up. Till the day came, in the end came, close of a long day, sitting at her window, quiet at her window, all eyes, all sides, high and low, for a blind up, one blind up, no more. Never mind the face behind the pane, famished eyes like hers to see, be seen. No, a blind up like hers, a little like, one blind up, no more, another creature there, somewhere there, behind the pane, another living soul. One other living soul, till the day came, in the end came, close of a long day, when she said to herself, who knows, time she stopped, time she stopped, sitting at her window, quiet at her window, only window, facing other windows, other only windows, all eyes, all sides, high and low. Time she stopped, time she stopped, time she stopped. More. So in the end, close of a long day went down in the end went down down the steep stair let the blind down and down right down into the old rocker mother rocker where mother all the years, all in black, best black, sat and rocked, rocked till her end came. In the end came. Off her head, they said, gone off her head, but harmless, no harm in her, dead one night in the rocker in her best black head fallen and the rocker rocking rocking away so in the end close of a long day went down in the end went down down the steep stair let down the blind and down right down into the old rocker those arms at last and rocked, rocked with closed eyes, closing eyes. She, so long, all eyes, famished eyes, all sides, high and low, to and fro, at her window to see, be seen. 
till in the end, close of the day, long day to herself. Who knows? Time she stopped, let down the blind and stopped. Time she went down, down the steep stair. Time she went right down, was her own other, own other living soul. So in the end, close of a long day, went down, down the steep stair, let down the blind and down, right down, into the old rocker and rocked, rocked, saying to herself, no, done with that. The rocker, those arms at last, saying to the rocker, Rock her off, stop her eyes, fuck life, stop her eyes, rock her off, rock her off, rock her off. I'm Israel Horovitz. In, in the summer of uh, 1968, I went to Spoleto, Italy, to the Festival of Two Worlds with some short plays of mine and uh, some very nice young actors, Al Pacino, John Casal, Joel Clayburgh. We were all unknown kids. I had had one uh, book of short plays published, and there was um, a Swiss-French actress doing uh, monologues uh, of Beckett and Ionesco and Giraudoux at the festival. And uh, she came up to me and she asked me if I would like to meet Samuel Beckett. She said, if you'd like to meet Samuel Beckett, he would like to meet you. And my heart stopped. And she said to go to Paris on a particular day. It was July 8th. Uh, and. Uh, he would meet me for one half hour at the Closerie des Lilas, and she said, you can ask him anything, but don't ask him how he writes. And I went there uh, on the day, and we sat together for four and a half hours. Uh, at the end of uh, four and a half hours, I, and it was time to leave, and I was a young guy, and I said to him, do you think we could be friends? And he said, I think we are. And we began a friendship that continued until his death a few years ago and keeps going. Uh, I think we have our fathers of chance and our fathers of choice, and Samuel Beckett was my father of choice. I'm going to read just a very short excerpt from a remembrance uh, that I think I wrote for the Boston Herald shortly after he died, and then it was uh, edited with the help of uh, George Plimpton for the Paris Review in the spring of uh, 1997. But it was written 
uh, shortly after his death. And this is just an excerpt from the piece. Mr. Beckett is dead. So then is Paris too. I'm told he died last Friday night. So then all of my heroes are dead since last Friday night. Life clung to Samuel Beckett irritatingly for 83 and three quarters years. When he told me he'd lost his teeth, I mumbled an inanity. I said, it could be worse. Without pause, he struck back. There's nothing so bad that it can't grow worse. There is no limit to how bad things can be. Midwinter, mid-1973. I was cold, lonely, and alarmingly low on cash. I was scheduled to do a poetry reading at 8 in the evening at the American Cultural Center on the Rue du Dragon for 